So chapter 25 is submersion incidents, drowning, and diving emergencies. I'm talking about the diving emergency. The drowning is very important. So introduction, patients in such incidents need emergency care as rapidly as possible. However, the circumstances in which they receive the injuries can expose medical personnel to risk, at uh, the risk of injuries. And caring for these patients require not only emergency medical skills, but also the ability to recognize and avoid or reduce potential hazards at the scene. So water-related emergencies. We can be very effective in educating the public on water safety and work towards prevention rather than just treating water-related emergencies. And there is a lot of EMS agencies, hospitals that do water safety outreach. A couple of years ago, hospitals, UMC EMS recognized they were running on a lot of drowning victims. A lot of those were kids. So with the help of those hospitals, the SPIMS region, the RAC, they purchased a bunch of life jackets and did outreach, handed out the life jackets and did some education for the kiddos as well. So especially when we talk about pediatric trauma, uh, public outreach, public education is a large role that EMS providers should play. So prevention measures that we can educate people on. PFDs, personal flotation devices, prevent many drowning deaths. If you have a pool where kids are going to be around it, the pool should be fenced off and inaccessible to kids that are not monitored. You should constantly supervise kiddos who are in the area of a body of water or a large container of water. And we should instruct people not to use alcohol when engaged in water activities. They're trying to take the fun out of everything. So drowning. Drowning is an incident in which someone is submerged or immersed in a liquid that results in a primary respiratory impairment. So we used to use the term a near drowning. A near drowning was if somebody was submerged, but then they survived. That was called a near drowning. Drowning, they died. We do not use the term near drowning anymore. So if they were submerged, whether they live from it or they don't live from it, we still refer to it as a drowning. Liquid prevents the patient from breathing air. They're aspirating a lot of water so that it's filling up their lungs and they can't breathe. And again, with drownings, the patient can live from, through the event or they may die from the event. So incidences of drowning. In children less than one, the bathtub is the most common drowning location. The mom or dad puts the kiddo in the bathtub to give them a bath. They run out of the bath real quick to check on something, come back, and the kid fell off their seat or whatever and is drowned. 40% of deaths are of children younger than the age of five. Second highest incidence is among teenagers. They, again, tend to engage in just riskier behavior. 85% of drownings are in males. It's really not that surprising. We engage in riskier behaviors, do stupid shit. And especially with teenagers and probably males, alcohol is frequently going to be involved. 
Water sports pose a risk of drowning and trauma as well, head and spinal injuries. And scuba accidents may involve exertion, inexperience, panic, and poor judgment as well. So panic can often contribute to the deaths of the person who loses self-control. So patient is out swimming in water. Then something occurs to happens to them that causes them to start to panic. Uh, they start swallowing water. They're getting fatigued, realize they can't make it back to the shore to the other end. Uh, unable to cope with currents. They get injured. They start getting too cold, entanglement, whatever the case may be. But something happens where they start to panic. They start panicking. They start hyperventilating, have insufficient breathing. That's causing them to actually lose buoyancy, meaning that they're having to work harder to try to stay afloat. Now they're getting exhausted and that causes them to drown. Prognostic, prognostic, sorry, predictors or the Orlowski predictors. These are chances of survival are greatest in patients with two or fewer of these characteristics. So the more of these that they have, the less likely they are to survive. So three years or older, younger kiddos tend to do better with drowning. They're submerged for over five minutes, resuscitation delayed over 10 minutes. They are comatose on arrival to the ED or their arterial pH is less than 7.1. Again, the few you want as little, little of those as possible, give you the best chances as well. So pathophysiology of drowning, what's going on in the body? Submersion results in aspirational water or laryngeal spasms leading to suffocation. We refer to that as a dry drowning. If you go under, all of a sudden you start trying to take in water, your body realizes, hey, water's trying to get into the trachea or the, uh, the lungs, we're going to cause laryngeal spasms and our airways just going to totally occlude. So their airways totally occlude, no water's getting in, but no air's getting in as well. So we refer to that as a dry drought because of those laryngeal spasms. Hypoxia, acidosis lead to brain damage and death. At the same time, we're inhaling water, aspirating water, we're washing away the surfactant that's in our lungs. And that surfactant maintains surface tension in the alveoli to keep them from collapsing. So we wash out that surfactant, it causes our alveoli to collapse as well. When surfactant is washed out, alveoli collapse. This results in ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Treatment-wise, we have to maximize oxygen delivery to the patient. If they're not breathing adequately, we got to start ventilating them. Hypothermia results from submersion in cold water and may actually pay, play a protective role. If somebody is going to drown in water, it is actually has better chances of survival and full recovery if they drown in cold water and they actually get hypothermic. So in this case, hypothermia would be a good thing. Complications of hypothermia include hypovolemia from increased capillary permeability, 
and cardiac dysrhythmias as well. Factors that influence the seriousness of drowning. After the drowning, do they have a persistent cough? Are they having trouble breathing or not breathing after drowning? Altered mental status during submersion where they couldn't do anything to try to protect their own airway. Vomiting. And if they've been using drug or alcohol, kind of lessens the chance or makes that more serious if they've been using drug or alcohol. History of seizures, diabetes, neuromuscular disorders. Again, if they're hypothermic, and in this case, hypothermia is a good thing. How long they were in cardiac arrest. Age of the patient, extremes in age, especially elderly, is not going to do too good with drowning. And their overall health or pre-existing medical conditions as well. Diving emergencies usually occur in pools or other shallow water where they dive in and their head strikes the bottom. Head and spine injuries may occur as well as fractures of the extremities or ribs. So if we're dealing with somebody that is unresponsive in water and nobody knows exactly what happened, we're going to go ahead and assume that the patient does have a spinal injury. If, if we can't rule it out, we don't know exactly what happened. They're just found floating in the water. We're going to assume there's spinal injuries. We're going to treat it as such, taking spinal precautions. All right, we'll go ahead and take a break. We're a little ahead of schedule, I think. So, so safety measures in water-related emergencies. <clears throat> Very important that we do not attempt a water rescue unless you meet all of the following criteria. You have to consider yourself a good swimmer. You are trained in water rescue techniques. You are wearing a life jacket, life vest, PFD, and you are accompanied by other rescuers. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. Now, if we have a kid in a swimming pool, that may be a different, different story. If we feel comfortable jumping in and get the kid, then we may be able to accomplish that. If we ever make the decision to jump into water, though, we need to make sure that we're a good swimmer, we feel confident in our abilities, and we should try to avoid going into the water if we are alone. We need other rescuers on scene to kind of look out for us. If it's in larger bodies of water or if it's in like open water, then we really need specialized training in order to accomplish that. If the patient is close to the shore, we use a strategy known as the reach, throw, row, and row, then go strategy. So the first thing we try to do is just to reach the patient. If we have a, a pole or something that we can reach out and have the patient grab onto the pole. If they're too far out for that, that, that was reach. Now we're going to throw them something like a life ring that's tied to a rope that we can pull the patient back in. <clears throat> if that's not an option and we have access to a boat, then we row out to the, to the patient get the patient to get in that way. We try to avoid going into the water until the, until there's no other options. 
So again, the last part of this would be to go to actually for us or a rescuer to get into the water. So possible spinal injuries and water related emergencies. We are going to suspect spinal injury if there was a diving accident. So if they dived in, came up unresponsive, drowning, we're going to go ahead and treat it as a spinal injury. Patient may have been struck by a skier, surfboarder, or other object while in the water. Swimmer was using a water slide when they got injured. Suspicion of intoxication. Any evidence of a traumatic injury. Or the big one is we can't rule it out. So unless somebody actually witnessed all of the events, if, if it wasn't witnessed, we have to assume there's a spinal injury if they're found unresponsive in water, so we're going to take spinal precautions. So how we could handle that, it's easier in many situations to go ahead and put them on the backboard while they're in the water. That backboard actually floats and it can help us with our rescue. So if that's a possibility, we should try to put them on the board on the water. First thing we're going to do is we're going to maintain manual stabilization, and we obviously want to log roll them so their face is not underwater. If they needed rescue breathing, we can go ahead and start breathing, position the backboard, push it under the patient, under the water, and let it float back up underneath the patient. Secure them to the board, and again, we can use that board to help move them to the shoreline. Resuscitation water-related emergencies. The mammalian diving reflex may be activated in cold water drowning. And basically during that mammalian diving reflex, everything starts slowing down. Heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen demand. And the mammalian diving reflex results in a drastic decrease in metabolic rate. So if we're slowing down the patient's or the patient's metabolism is slowing down, that is also slowing down the oxygen demand or how much oxygen those cells need. And the patient may be able to be resuscitated even after prolonged submersion, especially in colder water. So again, that colder water actually kind of plays a protective role to the patient. So there's an old saying in EMS, and this goes for drowning and just code-related emergencies in general, we don't consider a patient dead until they are warm and dead. So if they are in cold water, we'll start resuscitation, we'll take st steps, takes actions to warm that patient up before we ever decide not to work the patient or to stop resuscitation efforts on that patient. So our assessment-based approach for drowning water-related emergencies, start with our scene size up. Again, your own safety is the most important. If we are within 10 feet of the edge of the water, we should be wearing some type of PFD. Take standard precautions. We should consider water temperature as well and request additional resources that needed. If we do need that specialized rescue team to, to jump in the water to save the patient and so forth, make sure we're requesting those resources. Primary assessment, we'll form a general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient, assess mental status, consider the possibility of spinal injury, take spinal precautions if we suspect it or can't rule it out, establish a patent airway, provide aggressive airway management as indicated as well. 
If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to begin positive pressure ventilations with the BVM. If they are breathing adequately on their own, we're going to maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. Look for any trauma, treat, bleeding. If we notice, note it. Any indications of shock, we treat the shock accordingly as well. Based on the information that we gained from our primary assessment, we determine the patient priority for transport. Moving on to our secondary assessment, go ahead and perform your physical exam. Get a history, hopefully from the patient, if not from bystanders that witnessed the event as well. We want to determine how long was the patient in the water? Was the patient wearing a PFD at any time? How long was the patient submerged or under the water? Was diving involved, trying to determine the need for spinal precautions? Do we know if alcohol was involved? And a full sample history if we can get it from them as well. Signs and symptoms that patients suffering drowning may, may exhibit, may have airway obstruction, airways could be full of water, Absent or inadequate breathing. They could be pulseless and full cardiac arrest. Have a possible spine or head injury. They may have soft tissue injuries, breaks, fractures, and musculoskeletal injuries as well. Can have external or internal bleeding, shock, hypothermia, alcohol or drug use. And water-related could be a drowning or submersion incident. Once we get to the patient or the patient's rescued out of the water and we get to them, we're going to categorize drowning patients as one of these four categories. Patient can be absolutely asymptomatic. They have no signs, no symptoms. They appear to be absolutely normal. Or they can be symptomatic, exhibiting some signs and symptoms, but not in full-blown cardiac arrest. They could be in cardiac arrest, no pulse, no respirations. Or they could be obviously dead. Rigor mortis is present, dependent lividity, or they have wounds incompatible with life. Again, treatment's obviously going to depend on how they're presenting to us. So our care for drowning. <clears throat> we want to remove the patient from the water as quickly and safely as possible. If spinal injuries are suspected, again, go ahead and take spinal precautions. Do so in shallow water if possible. If there's no spinal injury, place the patient on their left side, the, right, the recovery position. If the patient is breathing and has a pulse, and be prepared to suction. All that water that they inhaled, aspirated, or swallowed, they may start vomiting it or may start coming up. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own or not breathing at all, establish an airway, begin ventilations with supplemental O2. If they are breathing adequately, we maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. Patient, patient is pulseless and apneic. We're going to begin CPR, apply the AED. Again, they probably are likely suffered or swallowed large amounts of water that's causing gastric distension. If that gastric distension 
interferes with ventilation, we need to decompress the stomach. How do we decompress the stomach? Well, at the basic level, that our only option is to turn the patient on their left side and press very firmly on their stomach, trying to force all that air out of their stomach back out through their mouth. We can't isolate just air, so everything in that stomach is going to come out with it. So we're basically inducing vomiting on the patient by pushing hard, firmly on that stomach. So put them on their left side to help protect that airway and have suction ready to go as well. Advanced paramedic level, we're going to stick a tube, a nasal gastric tube up their nose or through their mouth, depending on what type of treatment we're providing to them. And we're going to hook that up to suction and actually suck it out. Manage any other medical or trauma conditions that are present, ALS support, and transport with any type of treatment or resuscitation efforts continuing throughout transport. So for the drowning itself, there's nothing we're going to be able to really do for the drowning. We're going to treat the patient as they present to us. Unconscious, not breathing, we're going to back one. Breathing okay, supplemental O2 to maintain O2 sats, supportive measures, transport the patient to the hospital. Very important right here, though, this is going to be on your test as well. We always transport a drowning victim, even if he or she is not experiencing any symptoms. Patients completely asymptomatic, says they're absolutely fine. We're still going to encourage them to go to the hospital. And the reason being is these patients can have complications that can arise up to 72 hours after the initial drowning. So even though they're fine right now, it's very important that they go to the hospital to be evaluated because they can get very critical, very sick, very critically within a couple of days or so. So they need to go to the hospital. They need to be evaluated. Reassessment. We're going to repeat primary, secondary assessment and vital signs. If the patient's unstable every five minutes. If the patient's stable every 15 minutes. So again, drowning, we're basically something we need to be aware of. We always assume spinal injury unless we know for sure there wasn't. Other than that, we're going to treat the patient pretty much like any other patient, how they're presenting with us. Uh, again, trouble breathing, put them on supplemental O2, dyspnea. If they're wheezing, we can give uh, breathing treatments, probably wouldn't be, but they might be. Unresponsive, cardiac arrest, we treat it just like any other patient. <clears throat> again, every patient, regardless of how good they look, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated. All right, so moving on to scuba or deep water diving emergencies. So scuba diving is a popular recreation activity, and scuba divers not only dive in oceans, but dive in lakes, ponds, rivers, and quarries as well. There's not a lot of great diving spots around here, but there is some diving spots. So even though we're in Lubbock, Texas, we may run on scuba-related emergencies. With commercial airline travel, you may encounter a scuba-related incident, even though you may live in an area where diving location without diving locations nearby. And some of these emergencies, like bends or decompression sickness, it can take several hours before they begin, become symptomatic. So a lot of the issues arise from scuba diving emergencies is because these patients, while they're diving, are breathing in compressed air that is under pressure. Many of these emergencies, like the bends, decompression sickness, can be very painful. Sometimes they can even be fatal for the patient as well. 
Not only do we have to worry about the actual diving part, breathing in the compressed air under pressure, but we also have to worry about possible drownings as well. So basic laws of physics as related to scuba or deep water diving emergency. Dysbarism is a medical condition that results from the effects of changes in ambient pressure. Pressure change, pressure change occurs when a person descends in water or ascends in altitude. <clears throat> and the pressure affects the compressible structures and substances within the body, particularly the gases within the body. And basic laws of physics are going to help us explain these changes. So some of these laws of physics, one of them is Boyle's law. Boyle's law states that at a constant temperature, the volume of a gas is inversely related to the pressure. So as pressure increases, the volume of gas decreases. And the opposite of that is true as well. As pressure decreases, the volume of the gas increases. So how that can relate to diving. A diver breathing compressed air at great depth must allow the volume of gas to gradually increase as he ascends. So a lot of divers, they have to be very careful on like their ascent rates, how fast they dive, go up. If they go up too fast, that can cause issues. Dalton's law, pressure, total pressure of a mixture of gas equals the sum of the partial pressure of the individual gases. So an example, air, the room air at sea level is 78% nitrogen. So nitrogen accounts for 78% of total pressure. So as a diver descends, the pressure of each gas in the air increases proportionately. And as the pressure of nitrogen increases, it begins to dissolve into the blood forming bubbles. And that nitrogen dissolving into the blood and then getting into the tissues or joints is very, uh, can oftentimes cause issues and be very painful for a patient. Henry's law, at a constant temperature, the amount of gas that dissolves in the liquid is proportionate to the pressure of the gas around it. With increasing depth, gases that have dissolved into the blood will dissolve into and accumulate in the fat and tissues forming bubbles. Charles's law. All gases expand equally upon being heated. So as a diver descends into colder water temperatures, colder water temperatures, the inhaled and dissolved gases contract. And as the diver ascends, the temperature increases and those gases expand. So things like uh, the bends typically doesn't happen until they are already on surface because those gases now are starting to expand. So decompression sickness, also known as the bends. The patho of the bends occurs as a result of the bubbles formed by the expansion of nitrogen into the blood and into the tissues. Those bubbles form and then nitrogen gets trapped in the tissues and in the bloodstream. The trapped air bubbles have two primary effects on the body. They either are going to act as an embolism that causes obstruction of circulation, 
or they are going to compress or stretch the blood vessels and nerves, causing pain, mainly. There are some factors that will predispose a patient or a person to decompression sickness. So flying too soon after a dive, that's major changes in altitude. They're below sea level in many cases, and then they're very high in an air, airplane. Failure to take safety stops while ascending. Again, they have to be very methodical, very controlled their rate of ascent. They have inadequate surface intervals. They dive surface and then dive again too soon. Inadequate decompression, diving at depths for too long a period, or repeated depth or dives at depth for uh, on the same day. Some physical characteristics that predispose a patient to decompression sickness. If the patient is in poor physical condition or they're obese, extremes in age, dehydration, heart or lung disease conditions, pre-existing musculoskeletal injuries, or if they're diving while they've pretty fatigued. Environmental factors, diving in colder water makes it more likely to get decompression sickness, diving in very rough seas, diving with heated diving suits, or if they're doing heavy work at depth. So there's different categories of decompression sickness. We have type one, type two, and then we have an arterial gas embolism or an AGE. So type one decompression sickness, signs and symptoms. Patients can present with pain to the joints, to their, may feel like it's in their bones. Paritis, burning of the skin, itching sensation or a burning sensation to their skin. Can present with a rash and or a orange peel appearance of the skin. We look at the patient's skin and it has that same texture as an orange peel does, very rough. And they may also have pitting edema swelling that is painless. Type two decompression sickness, as the nervous system signs and symptoms are involved, may have lower back pain, progressing to weakness, paralysis, numbness, tingling. Headaches, visual disturbances, dizziness. It can lead to altered mental status as well. And also nausea, vomiting, vertigo, and tinnitus or ringing sensation in the ears. Type 2 can also affect the respiratory system. They complain of a burning sensation upon inhalation be coughing, but it's a non-productive cough, respiratory distress, and if the respiratory system is involved, those signs and symptoms are often referred to as the chokes, normally begin 12 to 48 hours after the dive. So again, it's going to take some time. In the case of type 1, type 2 decompression sickness, it typically takes several hours before the patient becomes symptomatic. 
Circulatory system can also be involved with in tachycardia, hypotension, signs and symptoms of shock, formation of thrombus as well, or a blood clot. An assessment for DCS, things that we're looking for. Complaint of fatigue, again, signs and symptoms of shock. Pupillary changes. Pallor of the tongue, the tongue just looks really pale. Bloody sputum, nasal flaring, retractions, accessory muscle use. It looks like they're having a hard time breathing. Tachypnea, crackles, wet sounding lung sounds. O2 sats less than 94%. Patient may also present with vomiting and urinary bladder distension. Their bladder is full and they can't relieve themselves. So it feels painful, palpated. It feels extremely distended as well. Can lead to seizures, uncoordinated movement, weakness, motor and sensory deficits, joint pain, decreased range of motion, edema, swelling, cyanosis, pallor, itching, modeling, or marbling of the skin. Questions that we need to ask if we do suspect decompression sickness. We want to know where, where did the patient dive at? We want to know how deep they went, how long were they down there at that depth? Was it just the one dive? Did you have multiple dives? If it was multiple dives, what were the other depths and times? The rate of ascent. Now, I, I don't know how to scuba dive, so I don't know what a normal rate of ascent would be, but we can ask them, did you pay attention to your ascent? Did you ascend properly at the proper times and, or rate? You can also ask, want to ask, what have you done since the last time you dove today? Another complication from diving, again, is going to be that arterial gas embolism or an AGE. It's where an artery is obstructed by one of those bubbles that we talked about or a cluster of bubbles. Things that can cause an AGE is a rapid ascent with breath holding can cause alveolar rupture, allowing air to enter the bloodstream. Again, not only do they have to worry about controlling their ascent, but they also have to worry about breathing while they're ascending as well, because if they hold their breath, it can cause this AGE. Another important part, signs and symptoms of an AGE often occur within 15 minutes of returning to the surface. So that's going to be one way that's going to help us kind of determine what's going on. Is this an AGE or is this just a type 1, type 2 decompression sickness? One way we can tell the part is by the how fast the onset was. If it was very quick, it's probably an AGE. If it took several hours, it's probably just decompression sickness. So signs and symptoms, you'll notice a lot of these are going to be similar. Itchy, blotchy, mottled skin, difficulty breathing, dizziness, chest pain, severe deep aching pain in muscles, joints, and tendons, blurred or distorted vision, partial deafness, 
nausea, vomiting, numbness, paralysis, weakness or numbness on one side of the body, staggering gait, lack of coordination, frothy blood in the nose and mouth, swelling, crepitus in the neck, loss or distortion of memory, coma, can be fatal, lead to cardiac respiratory arrest, behavioral changes as well. So again, decompression sickness versus an AGE. Again, some of their signs and symptoms are very similar, maybe very difficult for us to determine the difference. So again, the main thing that we're gonna go off of is how quickly the onset of symptoms work. Air embolisms generally occur immediately or within 15 minutes upon the patient returning to the surface. Symptoms of decompression sickness, again, typically take several hours. So barotrauma is during ascent or descent, pressure becomes too great within the body's air-filled cavities, such as the sinuses or the middle ear. So again, it's, based, it's due to pressure changes. So the pressure changes so great that it causes tissue and the air cavities are injured. So they rupture eardrums or sinuses, et cetera. Again, oftentimes it does result in a ruptured eardrum. Sign symptoms barotrauma, mild to severe pain in the affected area. Again, this is normally in the sinuses or the ears. Clear or bloody, bloody discharge from the nose or ears. Nausea, disorientation, vertigo, dizziness. So care for the diving emergency. Supportive measures, not all we're going to be able to do. Consider the possibility of spinal injury. Take spinal precautions if indicated to do so. Keep the patient supine or in the lateral recumbent position. ABCs, make sure the airway is patent. Assess their breathing. They're breathing adequately. Administer oxygen 15 liters per minute by non-rebreather mask if the patient is breathing adequately. Again, this is another one of those conditions where we do not care about O2 sats or pulse ox. If they were diving, scuba diving, they are going to get placed on high flow to regardless of O2 sats. If the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, assist ventilations with the BVM hooked up to high flow oxygen. If they're in cardiac arrest, Start CPR, apply the AED. Again, other than that, it's supportive measures and transport the patient. <clears throat> we should take the diving log if available. Again, a lot of divers are going to log their dives. If we have access to it, bring it with us to the hospital. We should transport the, to a facility with the hyperbaric chamber. If one is available, both UMC and Covenant are, do have hyperbaric chambers. The reason being is they can simulate that pressure at that depth. So they can kind of basically take them back down there to that depth and then slowly take them back up properly, allowing that nitrogen to properly dissolve uh, where it's not forming those air bubbles. And then other than that, it's continue to monitor and transport. 
So in summary, drowning is immersion in a liquid that impairs the ability to breathe. Drowning causes a significant number of deaths, but is preventable. Again, you should always consider the possibility of a spinal injury for drownings or diving emergencies. And if no pulse is present, begin CPR, apply the AED. Scuba diving emergencies can be explained by gas, basic gas laws. Treatment of drowning and diving emergencies focuses on supportive measures. ABCs, airway, breathing, oxygenation, CPR for patients in cardiac arrest. And again, always encourage transport for water emergencies, regardless of how well the patient appears, how stable they appear, vital signs, how normal they are, it does not matter. If it was a drowning, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated. 